0: What are the differences between religion, magic, and spirituality? Over time, these categories have been articulated in a variety of ways across differing cultures. However, many assume that multiple understandings are merely derivative of Western assertions about secular modernity. In The Modern Spirit of Asia, The Spiritual and the Secular in China and India, Peter Vanderveer explores how Chinese and South Asians interpreted Western discourses about religion and spirituality. Through his work, he demonstrates that cross-cultural comparison provides us with a complex interactional history where non-Western participants shape their own visions of society, nation, and self, often in dialogue with Westerners, but not dependent on them. In our conversation, we discuss scholarly conceptualizations of Asian traditions, secularism, European imperialism, Mohandas Gandhi, nationalism, modern interpretations of Buddhism and Taoism, Christian missionaries, political spirituality, religious minorities in the state, and Chinese and Indian modernities. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Peter Vanderveer. Joining me today is Peter Vanderveer, and he's here to speak to us about the modern spirit of Asia, the spiritual and the secular in China and India, one of his many new books. He's very busy. So thank you for joining us, Peter. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Uh, So as is our tradition here at New Books in Religion, uh, we usually start with a little background on you. So if you could tell us a little bit about how you got interested in the study of religion uh, more broadly, um, perhaps um, influential mentors uh, or moments in your life that have really been um, substantial in either the approach you take or in the questions you're asking. Um, how, do, how did this all start for you?
1: Yeah, I think I may not have been initially very interested in religion. I was interested in linguistics and in philosophy uh, in high school. and um, But I went to uh, uh, India uh, after high school, uh, which a lot of people of my generation did, uh, so hitchhiking and taking the magic bus from Istanbul to uh, uh, Kabul and um, Pakistan to, uh, to Delhi uh, just to see the world. And um, so I, I traveled for several months in India and Nepal and was struck by how little I knew about the history of India and the history of, um, and actually the entire region I traveled through and how important uh, religion was in these areas. So um, I uh, was born in the early 50s and um, uh, religion had become less uh, central uh, in Europe than, or in Western Europe um, than it had been before. Although the Netherlands were still, uh, where I was born, uh, uh, were still uh, rather religious. So um, Holland was at that time called a Pillarized Society. So uh, religion did play a role, but people of my generation just wanted to get rid of it. So uh, it's not that uh, we were so uh, deeply interested in religion, um, saw it as something that was uh, slowly disappearing. Uh, in Western Europe. But on my trip to India, uh, I just discovered that uh, this was not true for the rest of the world, or at least for that world I was traveling in. And um, uh, uh, Islam was obviously very important in Iran. and That was still Iran under the Shah. We are talking now about, I think, something like 1973, or 1972, 1973. And um, uh, in Pakistan, Islam was very important. And in India, they had a very strange set of practices which uh, were called Hinduism, but I couldn't qu- quite figure it out. I didn't understand what was going on there. So I came back to uh, to Holland with an idea uh, that there was a whole world that um, was quite fascinating and in which religion played a uh, central role. So I uh, decided to... Combine my interest in linguistics and philosophy with the interest in uh, in India, uh, and um, started with studying Sanskrit, and then also added uh, Hindi, a modern Indian language, to it. And um, yeah, then basically figured out that for the Indi- for understanding in the Indian civilization something we call now religion was quite uh, central and um, then I went back to India doing field work and, and so on and so forth so um, then basically it went uh, in that direction um, but, but not a kind of initial curiosity about what religion was but r- rather a experience during a, uh, a trip as a uh, a young student uh, going to a world that uh, he was completely unaware of.
0: Now, you've written a lot, especially on the South Asia, some some very uh, influential books. Um, where do you see this project um, kind of falling into the trajectory of your larger research? How, how did this project emerge from uh, your previous work and how did it, how did you start to see this coming together as a book?
1: Yeah, uh, I um, became interested in comparison in uh, uh, an earlier book, The Imperial Encounter, which looked at uh, Britain in the 19th century and India in the 19th century, and uh, as its major argument that there is a, an interaction between, say, the colonial metropole and the colony uh, which uh, configures what we call religion and also uh, nationalism uh, in these two uh, places that are uh, connected through uh, imperialism. Um, so that was a already a project on on comparison uh, between Europe and uh, an Asian country, and um, I got into this through uh, students that we had at the University of Amsterdam, where I was teaching uh from uh shaman in um, in uh fujian in, in, in uh southern China um, who basically told me that uh, what I was teaching them about religion and nationalism in Europe and in India was not applicable to China. Uh, they said, well we have solved the problem of religion already in the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century and um, basically, you will not find uh, this kind of political significance of religion and so on in, in China. So I was getting very curious about this place mm-hmm. and uh, went to it um, at their invitation. And, well, the first thing which then stri- uh, struck me in uh, in Shaman, where, where I went, uh, that the university is a university that was built at the beginning of the tw- uh, 20th century, was built uh, right next to uh, a very major uh, temple, uh, Nanputro, and um, a Buddhist temple, a huge Mo- Buddhist monastery, in fact, which had been a teaching academy for uh, many centuries. And uh, later I discovered that it was, in the 20th century, one of the major places for development of modern um, uh, kind of practical Buddhism or engaged Buddhism and um, so these students were just saying nonsense in fact uh, because their own university had been definitely planned next to this uh, uh, seed of learning that had been there for centuries and then when I was uh, a little bit kind of exploring the area, uh, this is a, it's on the ocean side so there you have uh, fishing villages and these fishing villages were full of uh, little shrines for, uh, say, the goddess Matsu and so on, uh, uh, fishermen in that entire area um, worship that, which looks very much like um, the worship of Hindu goddesses and uh, has actually, did, well, in many ways it looks very similar in terms of ritual practices and uh, and, uh, and, and how these, these images look and so on. So I thought, well, this is interesting, you have this intellectual class that is denying something with this at their doorstep, and um, let me figure this out for a while. Um, And then I thought maybe I can write a book on comparing India, which I knew uh, quite well by then, and um, and China, which I didn't know at all. and uh, and see whether these two cases of uh, actually civilizations that are next to each other um, can highlight some issues in either of them uh, that are not being highlighted in the research that is specialized on them. Uh, because I have this idea that, that uh, comparing gives you some uh, possibility of finding things which are normally uh, not uh, deeply discussed in the literature that is specialized on one of these areas. I didn't, of course, quite realize how idiotically big this (laughs) enterprise was. So, uh, uh, now I, uh, of course, uh, this is total hubris, uh, but definitely um, I, 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 I learned a lot from it, and uh, but that's how it came about. Actually, again through seemingly these things all happen with me through experiences that I have. It's not that I have a intellectual plan that is uh, uh, from some ac- uh, abstract set of ideas that I want to explore, but more through um, uh, encounters of moments that I uh, um, that I see certain things and then think, well, uh, I have to look into it a little bit more.
0: Now for the for the book one of the central strings that runs throughout it um is this relationship between categories and specifically uh the categories religion magic secularity and spirituality. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you're considering these these terms these categories and, and how it structures uh the the remainder of the book?
1: Yeah um well for, let me start with with uh uh the discovery <laughs> the, uh, uh, that that um, that I made when I read Talal Assad's work in the beginning um, uh, uh, Talal uh uh, did a few pieces on, on Christian monasticism and so on. That's how I first um, uh, read him. But then he published uh, this genealogies of religion and uh, made a very interesting case about, say, how this concept of religion had a particular history within, uh, within Europe, within, in, in, in Christian history, and uh, that it was universalized Uh, over worlds in which uh, that category did not actually play the same role. And um, so that's where basically my thinking about these things started, um, that that you've got to figure out that Hinduism and also for China, Taoism, uh, that these are all uh, terms that are uh, that you have to be uh, using very carefully, and um, uh, that the concept of religion in both India and China is very, very recent. Uh, basically, second half of the nineteenth century. That is not to say that these traditions are not old. Of course, obviously, these traditions are very old, and um, and they have been real traditions in the sense that there are real debates between people about correct practices and correct beliefs and and not correct beliefs and so on. So um, my interests uh, also in earlier work was already in how uh, through imperialism and through the encounter with the West, these uh, concepts are made that people have to respond to and then uh, really uh, they think about their own practices in new terms. Uh, are using new terms. So the term religion uh, for uh, China uh, is a new thing and it becomes an issue that uh, and for India also and becomes uh, a thing they people reflect on and uh, and then they uh, they try to say something about the relation between the society in which they live and this religion. Um, So what is then the religious core of their civilization? Now Hinduism becomes then, for a number of thinkers, the core of their civilization and um, uh, sometimes Taoism or um, what is called Chinese religion becomes the core of uh, Chinese um, uh, civilization but more uh, importantly Confucianism becomes the core of Chinese civilization. Now, when that happens, when that intellectual move is made, uh, then uh, these uh, intellectuals in India and China also want to defend what uh, their religion is or their religious civilization is against, um, say, missionaries and imperial uh, uh, thinkers that think that their uh, civilizations are backward and... um, Uh, should actually uh, be changed. Uh, To some extent, they also take that over, of course, um, because they see a certain kind of backwardness in the fact that they have been defeated in many ways by Western power, Uh, and they blame their civilizations and their religions um, uh, for that. So... They want to create a religion that is um, comparable to Christianity and uh, that is um, uh, defensible. And uh, one of the moves that is made in in many of these religions is to get rid of superstitious, magical uh, practices. Now, that is, um, of course, a difficult thing to do uh and um but, but 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 this this idea of uh some practices being magical and um uh, the superstition of the masses uh, that uh, that's is available well in europe and in india and in china and it becomes kind of it's marshalled for the transformation of what is seen as uh, respectable religion uh, in these places. Uh, so you have a more respectable Confucianism, you have the respectable uh, Hinduism, uh, you have of course Taoism, which is very hard to get rid of these magical practices, but you can uh, emphasize more a textual Taoism uh, and so forth. Also for Buddhism these, these things uh, happen. Um, So it's modernized, as it were. And then um, uh, you have another phenomenon that happens at the same time, uh, which um, says that uh, there are ways of thinking about the world that um, are not uh, to be captured or are not captured by um, institutional uh, religion and that are... um, uh, also not entirely um, uh, captured by a secular worldview. And um, it is, uh, it's a kind of um, universalism that uh, comes up, uh, both in, in, in Europe uh, among people who, um, well, uh, are interested in, in, in spirituality uh, and, uh, and in the United States among transcendentalists and, and a whole range of people who are interested in the wisdom of the East but at the same time interested in poetry and so on um, who do not want to stick to uh, organized uh, religion and so therefore do not want to follow Hindu priests or Catholic priests and so on but want to take from all these different streams of what they would call spiritual wisdom, uh, a whole um, uh, universal uh, spirituality. In that interplay, uh, uh, the East um, is a source of uh, of wisdom. And then finally, uh, you have, of course, um, the idea of the secular, uh, which... um, is a very complex uh, idea, but it's an idea that um, uh, um, religions uh, can be um, a private affair but should not enter the public sphere and definitely should not have scientific claims. And um, so um, uh, the uh, idea that there is uh, uh, the possibility in, the, in a space for um, for religious beliefs in 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 the private sphere, um, uh, but that the, uh, the public sphere should be uh, entirely cleansed cleansed from uh, religious influences is a very strong uh, set of ideas which you find in major political movements all over the world. So also uh, in India and China. Now. My argument is that these things, these these different concepts, uh, religion, magic, um, uh, the spiritual and the secular, uh, cannot be studied and understood on their own. They form a uh, chain, uh, um, uh, you could say, uh, that uh, are deeply um, uh, connected to each other. And uh, when you start moving on one side, <laughs> the uh, something else is happening on the other side. So um, uh, what you see is a whole fulcrum of uh, of thought that uh, centers around these four concepts.
0: Now, you cover a lot of ground in this book, and we certainly won't be able to explore it all. Uh, but you begin by thinking about, while spirituality is... This cultural category developed uh, primarily in the West, um, you examine how Asians interpret Western discourses about spirituality. Can, can you tell us a little bit about how this happened in, in India and China?
1: Yeah. Um, so there, there is this um, idea that um, one does not want to have institutional religion but one wants to have uh, a um, influx from or in um, influence from uh, uh, the wisdom of the East, and that that is very strong in Europe and America in the second half of the 19th century, even in the beginning of the 20th century. And um, so, people are really interested in in the books of the East, and so on. You get publications, you get translations from uh, Eastern, what is then called also Eastern philosophy. All these are new things, in fact. And um, uh, people in uh, the colonized areas, and um, China is not colonized, but uh, has, stands on a very strong imperial influence. People in in India and China read what um, the people outside of uh, these uh, societies are writing about them, and what uh, the knowledge formation is about their civilizations, and they also participate then in it, uh, not only as informants and so on, but as as intellectuals in their own right, Uh, and try to figure out what, in the modern world, um, their civilizations can contribute to uh, their nationalism, to forming an idea of a national uh, pride and uh, national uh, culture. and um, uh, they um, uh, they want to contribute to a universal uh, uh, civilization. Um, so this is um, a major uh, issue. For example, in India, uh, one of the major figures is a guy called uh, Swami Vivekananda. Uh, He goes to uh, uh, the World Parliament uh, of um, Religions in in Chicago in the uh, uh, 1890s and and brings this message from India uh, as a teacher of um, spiritual wisdom to the West. And in doing so, he also transforms uh, the understanding of uh, religious traditions, uh, especially yoga, uh, uh, in India itself. Uh, so it's a double move, as it were. It's a presentation, or representation of India to outsiders. But then it also changes uh, what is the understanding of uh, the traditions um, in, in, in India itself. And also th- that same thing is happening, in fact, in, um, in China, uh, not so uh, clear and so strong as in India because uh, India is colonized and uh, the English language becomes a major language uh, in, uh, in India. Uh, whereas uh, China has a much more, a much stronger resistance against um, uh, against this, China is a very double move, as it were. Uh, on the one hand, uh, uh, keeping these Western influences and especially the um, the language out, and um, uh, at the same time uh, trying to uh, conform to. Western ideas about science and, uh, and modernity. So um, uh, you, you find in, in China also spiritual leaders who take over this idea of, uh, of, uh, of universal wisdom and uh, China's contribution to it, but they are not as prominent as in uh, India because of the particular history of, uh, of imperialism.
0: Now, um, the role of Western scholarship also um, played a formative part in constructing these categories, especially the categories of religion and world religion, Um, and you you trace some of these genealogies, and I was wondering just to kind of give us an idea of kind of how – Academics, or or orientalists, or scholars played in shaping uh, notions of religion. Um, What 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 would you say is the impact of European modernity on the conceptualizations of Asian traditions? Um, And you you give us an example from uh, Max Mueller and James Legg, but you also give us a snapshot of the the Dutch uh, scholarship, and perhaps since. that's your background, that, that, that might be something that would be extremely valuable for, for listeners, this Dutch example of scholarship on the construction of these categories. Yeah.
1: Now, I think the, uh, this was of course an international, uh, like it is today, right? Uh, you are an American, I'm a Dutch. It's uh, We are all in, uh, in conversation with each other, and that was uh, starting uh, in uh, the second half of the 19th century. So Mueller definitely, uh, through the sacred books of the East uh, and that uh, played a ma- major role in this. But the, the Dutch um, were also, uh, the Dutch uh, had a colonial empire. Uh, Indonesia was the, the major uh, element of, and um, the Dutch had to deal with, um, Islam and um, with um, uh, what they call the Hindu Buddhists, um, yeah, uh, layer under uh, Islam, as it were, um, it is sometimes called Javanese uh, mysticism. Um, uh, you have um, uh, you, you have these ideas still in Clifford Geertz' work on the religion of Java. Um, Uh, uh, Bali as a Hindu um, uh, kingdom. Um, So the Dutch had to rule an area in which Islam and uh, Hinduism and Buddhism were um, of importance. And uh, and of course of major political importance was um, uh, Islam. And um, uh, these uh, academics in uh, in Holland uh, had to work with the colonial government to get, basically, um, uh, knowledge. They were employed by the colonial governments. uh, The the major uh, figure is Christian uh, Snugo Gronje, who became a a major uh, legal uh, authority on Islamic law. Uh, who was sent to um, by the Dutch colonial government to Mecca uh, to um, uh, study Muslims, especially Muslims from Aceh in uh, Indonesia, uh, in Mecca, and to get into Mecca he had to convert to Islam. So one of the debates later was whether he had become a real Muslim or not, uh, uh, an unreal Muslim, as it were, well. um, and. Um, so he, he basically scouted for the Dutch, and at the same time produced very major scholarship on uh, Islamic law. And later then became also a colonial agent in uh, suppressing um, uh, Muslim rebellions, or at Aceh rebellions, which had a, a, a kind of Islamic flavor, or there was an Islamic element in these, um, in these, uh, what were called with the rebellions. Um, so he was uh, advising the uh, military expeditions uh, on how to deal with Aceh. Um, so that's a very clear example of that kind of scholarship. Um, another one is the uh, uh, groot um, who was the isn't still one of the major sources for our understanding of Taoism, who uh, was sent to shaman by the Dutch to uh, study um, uh, actually the language. So that he could be sent afterwards to Borneo to um, let the uh, Dutch um, uh, govern the Chinese, um, they were called Kongzis, um, uh the Chinese um, uh, business and um, politics and religion conglomerates. You can also call them secret societies maybe. Uh, that were uh, very influential in Borneo, and the Dutch authorities had to deal with that. So, at the same time that he is preparing for that uh, work as a political and uh, language agent for the Dutch in Borneo, he studies um, local religion and uh, produces many volumes that are still uh, a major source for us to understand what uh, what Taoism is. No, that is one side, Snoege uh, and the Groot and what you could call colonial scholarship um, and on the other side you have the theologians and the um, uh, students of religion who uh, basically are in the same way as Müller trying to figure out what um, religion is at the end of the 19th century and um, what um uh, these different kinds of world religions are. Uh, so you cannot anymore uh, uh, just claim Christianity is the only religion, and the rest is superstition or or heathendom or whatever, uh, and has to be converted to Christianity. People are getting aware of a of a world in which there are parallel major uh, religious uh, traditions that have to be respected. And so the formation of comparative religion, in which um, Müller played an important role, also Thiele at um, at Leiden played an important role. Um, These people were were doing that um, in a more abstract way, as it were, on basis of textual traditions and on sometimes rather ideological ideas about, especially about Islam. Um, it's very interesting how that Buddhism and Hinduism are never seen as a threat and therefore as, as, as a moral um, world religion whereas Islam is really a problem. And it's of course also a geopolitical problem as it is today. And um, uh, you have therefore a, a very interesting kind of um, juxtaposition and also partly conversation of people who have practical knowledge uh, in the field, as it were, of Muslim society, of, um, of Chinese society. Uh, you have the same kind of things also uh, in archaeology and so on. so people who do um, work in the colonized areas and the more abstract workers who basically have to uh, also deal with um, uh, theology and and Christianity in the home country. So, uh, especially Leiden and Amsterdam, also Utrecht, these are, yeah, very interesting sites for studying that interplay of uh, new knowledge about uh, these colonized areas and and theological uh, debates about uh, true religion.
0: Now, Christians played a, a formative role on the ground, too, in the form of Christian missionaries. And you outline some of the contours of the debate in terms of what is the location of Christianity in a modern society. Um, how, how did how did these debates affect the formulation of, of Indian and Chinese modernities? How do they uh, take shape in those contexts?
1: Yeah, missionaries are very important. Uh, They bring uh, basically um, uh, knowledge, um, also technical knowledge to uh, local areas, and uh, they intervene uh, in the understanding of uh, local traditions and so on. Uh, They also often, like in India, uh, (laughs) play a... um, Role in formulating uh, something about uh, the downtrodden, say the untouchables and the tribals and so on, so the marginal people in the in society. So they are really um, influential uh, in a very um, yeah uh, to put that, in a kind of infiltrating way, as it were, at several levels of of society, um, especially at the uh, at the local uh, level, at the grassroots level. Um, they also attack, uh, they criticize practices and um, they um, uh, uh, say that they are, these practices are immoral and should be changed. And to some extent they try to influence politically also the colonial governments to change those things. And so there's a kind of always a tension between missionaries and colonial governments. It's, it's a mistake to think uh, as, of missionaries as as just handing glove is the colonial authorities that's not the case at all uh, they are really in in always in in debate and in conflict with the colonial authorities because authorities want just want peace to be able to also um, uh, do uh, what is economically <laughs> important get money out of uh, these places um, but but they they uh, they Intervene and they deal with local society, with local culture, and people in these local cultures they um, uh, want to defend what they are doing, and uh, they feel they feel attacked, and so you get a lot of apologetics um, um, in India and in uh, and in China. Uh, You get also, of course, violence. Um, People. You you have the Boxer Revolt at the end of the uh, 19th century in China, uh, killing missionaries in many places. Um, But mostly this is just in a uh, more debating form. And you get all kinds of movements that actually imitate certain kinds of elements uh, that um, are being uh, brought by the missionaries without taking over Christianity, uh, so uh, you, you find all kinds of movements, both in India and in China, that imitate, for example, um, educational practices. Uh, they start schools and so on, Buddhist schools, um, uh, all kinds of uh, Hindu schools um, to uh, basically emulate the, um, the success of Christianity to bring a certain kind of modern world and um also what is then called um, kind of more practical buddhism or um active buddhism uh, that is um uh, very much looking like missionaries in in the sense that you want to um uh, not only meditate but also um Um, uh, do practical work among uh, among people, so social welfare work and so on. So health and education are um, aspects of modernity that are brought by missionaries and are imitated by movements in uh, Islam, Hinduism, Taoism, uh, and so on, and Buddhism.
0: Now magic also poses a problem for uh, modernizing projects I guess we could say um, what was the problem with magic for for, for South and East Asians um, how did they see its place within modern society and what were the types of things that, that people were um, critiquing
1: well they are critiquing um, uh certain kinds of um uh like like spirit possession uh, forms of enthusiasm as it were where people ro- lose their um rationality uh, so to say uh, and um and uh, forms of um uh, magic in the sense of influencing the future uh, through uh, certain ritual practices um the idea of modernizing elites was that um, uh, the people, uh, say common people, they're uh, hindered in um, becoming modern citizens uh, by their um, uh, magical practice, by these superstitious practices. They have to become more rational. and. Um, uh, they are also fooled, and um, uh, in, in, in these arguments you find that, that, that element often, um, that uh, the common people are fooled by priests, and uh, these priests are um, uh, just getting some personal gain out of, um, of fooling uh, uh, commoners. So education is often seen as an answer to this. Uh, so uh, the idea that if one uh, educate people, they will be become more um, uh, rational. Uh, and then the progress of society, which was lacking uh, in the sense that the West seemed to be more advanced, or was more advanced in many ways, um, and had to be, one had to catch up. That say uh, scientific progress could be stimulated um, uh, by getting rid of all these magical practices uh, through which uh, people uh, were handed to see the world as it is. Um, now, in that you find a, in a whole range of, uh, of thinkers and and um, uh, uh, politically activists uh, people. Um, both in India and China and in, in China much stronger than in India, because in India these it's the, these practices are hierarchical um, so people are not so much condemned when they do these practices that are seen as magical and superstitious by elites. Uh, these elites see these uh, what they call low practices uh, as inherent to being in such a low position. So it's a kind of socially determined uh, stupidity as it were. Um, And the Indians have less the idea that one has to be educated out of this. Um, uh, uh, So there is less the sense of a certain kind of equality that has to be uh, reached through a, a shared rationality. Um, so there, you have a difference between uh, India and China, which is still available today.
0: Now, in it, within these secularizing projects, um, the material consequences um, are, are somewhat different when we look at China and when we look at India. Um, Can you talk about how um, practices like challenging social roles of religious professionals or questioning the types of activities that happen at um, so-called religious institutions or these types of things um, shaped Chinese and Indian secularism?
1: Yeah, well, the um – in that sense, this, uh, China and India are following a very different path. So um, uh, the Chinese intellectuals are, have always been very close to uh, the state. And um, uh, they, um, at the end of the 19th century, they are primarily interested in, in modernizing and in uh, a kind of uh, worship of science. Uh, Now, within that science, you have a lot of ideas that are actually traditional Chinese. So, they also stimulate, for example, traditional medicine. It's interesting that uh, a couple of days ago, uh, someone got the Nobel Prize for Medicine who was connecting science and traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, And that is, yeah... uh, how does one say that in English, grist to the mill or something? <laughs> for, <laughs> uh, for the uh, Chinese um, way of thinking, that um, uh, one has to actually take the this, this scientific elements out of these traditions. They are... Some of these traditions are scientific in themselves. Um, but basically, there is a very strong effort to... Um, uh, uh, to make a national uh, culture that is that takes science as its center and connects science to its civilization um Whereas in India, uh, the situation is quite different. Uh, And uh, I explain that through the fact that it has been colonized by the British. So um, the major thing of uh, basis of uh, resisting um, uh, British colonialism was uh, through religious mobilization. Uh, Muslim mobilization, Hindu mobilization, uh, these are the major forms of it. And um, uh, they have to therefore use religion as a source of that uh, mobilization. They do not attack it uh, in the same way as um, is done in in China, uh, where you do not have colonial authorities that are in some way uh, associated with uh, Christianity. You just have modern ideas that are uh, coming from the West. So the um, uh, nationalism in India has been, uh, from the start, uh, much more strongly uh, influenced by um, religion. And religion has been much more nationalized, as it were, and becoming a, a national property um, uh, in India than was the case in,
0: in China. Mm. Now, you return to ideas about spirituality, but but rather than this personal inner experience that many Westerners imagined uh, the East to possess, um, you talk about it as a political phenomenon and you, you look at both... Yoga and Qigong and, and kind of related projects. Um, in thinking about this, what should we consider when constructing a history of this political spirituality um, in, in modern Asia and as it blooms abroad?
1: yeah what I try to say is that um, people have seen indeed uh, spirituality as uh, as something that is um, deeply interior and um, is uh, is often seen also as conservative and uh, uh, are escapist and so on uh, and then uh, yeah people also look back at earlier forms of spirituality through the lens of new, uh, new age and so on. Um, what I try to show is that at the end of the 19th century uh, and uh, continuing in the 20th century, there is a very strong um, uh, movement that connects anti-colonial uh, politics um, with an idea of uh, the rich um resources of oriental uh, wisdom and um, uh, movements that are uh, socialist and um, uh, as I said, anti-colonial and that connect therefore uh, people in the West who are quite radical to um, uh, people uh, who are formulating uh, nationalist projects in uh, uh, in India and China. So that's one element of it. The other element, of course, is, as I said, that people like Vivekananda had reformed um, understandings of yoga and making yoga into a national uh, element of national culture uh, as the basis of um, of uh, uh, Hinduism and um at the same time a contribution to world spirituality and the uh, uh, movements that were started by Vivekananda become very crucial in uh, in Indian nationalism and also influence in a major way uh, people like Gandhi uh, who has his own form of understanding of yoga as a resource for, uh, yeah, you can say national regeneration. Um, so they become very political. Uh, so this spirituality is not uh, apolitical; it's actually very political, in, in both in, in in Europe and in America, and in um, and in say the East. Uh, Qigong has a very interesting kind of uh, history, and that it's um, uh, basically is uh, is stimulated by the Communist Party in the nineteen fifties as. Uh, yeah, as part of a of a cheap medical practice that can be um, uh, propagated by barefoot uh, doctors, as it were, uh, all over China. Uh, China is a very poor country in the 1950s, and um, uh, basic healthcare. Uh, uh, is uh, is stimulated through also stimulating traditional Chinese medicine. Now, there's no way you can understand traditional Chinese medicine and also forms of uh, li- like uh, qigong without having some baggage of um, of uh, religious traditions in it, Taoist uh, and Buddhist traditions. So, the communists take to some extent something on board. You can say that. Um, Uh, that they cannot completely control and um, uh, when uh, China opens up a little bit uh, in the the 1970s uh, and 80s um, this kind of Qigong movement gets an enormous um, uh, uh, spread through the population and then at the end uh, through movements like Falun Gong uh, become threatening to the uh, Chinese um, uh, government and um, here you have again something which seems totally interior and, and harmless just a you know, practices of breathing uh, that uh, are done in groups of people uh, becoming uh, slowly more and more millenarian and uh, political activists. And um, uh, so the potential of spiritual movements that have a certain kind of moral vision of the world to... uh, um, to serve as a, um, a source for uh, political mobilization uh, is 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 very real and 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 surely uh, in India and China one of the major elements of um, uh, political mobilization.
0: Um, and at the end of the book, you turn to the issue of Muslims in India and China, um, which of course, uh, have very different histories in terms of Muslims in these areas. Um, But you look at it more as a question of religious minorities and their relationship to the state. So what do we find when we examine the production of a Muslim minority in relation to a national majority in, in India and China?
1: yeah the what what happens in my view is that um, uh, there you get a nationalist view of civilization and um, uh, so uh, there is then the core civilization that is the basis of the nation uh, that is um, uh, formulated uh, say from the end of the nineteenth century and that uh, the major question uh, when you have a, a, a majoritarian nationalism, is what happens with the minorities, how it is going to treat the um, the minorities. Is it going to see as one of the streams that come into that civilizational course, or are they accepted on, a, on an equal basis and so on? Now, um, that's not happening in um, majoritarian um, nationalism in India and also not in uh, China. Um, uh, Muslims are seen as outsiders and continue to be seen as outsiders. And it becomes more and more a, um, uh, a, 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 a uh, issue uh, whether they belong or not. Uh, in india this is all obviously very clear it is qu- because it also leads then to uh, it has a much stronger political um salience because of the numbers and uh, uh, the significance of islam in in south asia um and then leads to the petition uh, um, between pakistan and india um that um that foreigners um, is directly then related to the existence of Pakistan, um, whereas in in China this is much more muted, uh, but becomes very crucial in the relation to uh, to Xinjiang and um, Xinjiang being basically a, a late addition to the Qing Empire and. Um, Uh, with a very complicated relationship to uh, to the core. Um, Now, the attacks basically on Islam in Xinjiang lead to um, a a solidarity uh, that is... Uh, possible between different groups of Muslims in uh, China that, um, in principle, do not have much to do with each other, uh, say Hui Muslims and um, Kazakhs and so on, and and Uyghur, They don't. Uh, they are ethnically so divided that Islam doesn't immediately um, uh, connect them, but. Uh, through the pressure of the state um, and uh, a state that defines itself as a civilizational state in which muslims are defined as outsiders um, you get a, a phenomenon of minoritization that um, that is also um, potentially uh, quite um, uh, quite powerful politically
0: now, there's so much more to the book and, and many of the examples. You really only scratched the surface, but uh, we've really taken a lot of your time, and we appreciate that. But before we let you go, can you tell us uh, the types of things you're working on now or the any publications we might look forward to in the, the near future?
1: Yeah, I have um, uh, given the um, – uh, how are they called? The, the, and registered the um, – uh, Morgan Lectures, and um, they are going to be published uh, in April, I think, by Duke University Press um, uh, under the title The Value of um, Comparison, uh, in which I try to uh, theoretically more, say, defend my um, interest in comparison. Uh, The... um, what I do is, of course, as I said, this is um, uh, hubris, and uh, um, uh, really, uh, you 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 eat more than you can swallow, or something. I don't know <laughs> what, but. Uh, <laughs> there must be English expressions like that, and um, um, uh, the that uh, and, and but I still believe that this is an important contribution to um, uh, getting out of uh, uh, too strong uh, specialization, and uh, which I I I deplore, uh, which I see how it has happened, but. Um, I think that we have to have also an antidote to it. So that's one element. And then basically also defending uh, uh, a more fragmentary approach uh, to um, uh, social reality uh, than, uh, say, cognitive approaches and universalist cognitive uh, approaches about our uh, universal capacity to, uh, to know things and um and large scale macro sociological approaches about uh, uh say uh, uh yeah what is sometimes done uh, by in political science these big uh, value surveys uh, so I, I try to defend a more um uh, anthropological and uh, humanistic um uh, approach uh, against what i see as uh uh, a growing importance of uh, universalist uh, and basically uh, Eurocentric ways of thinking.
0: Great. Well, we look forward to that, and thanks again for talking about this great book. Okay, thank you very much. That was my conversation with Peter Vanderveer about his new book, The Modern Spirit of Asia, The Spiritual and the Secular in China and India, published with Princeton University Press. Thanks again for listening to another episode of New Books in Religion.